How many of you, your brackets got messed up when Villanova lost yesterday? Anybody? How many of your brackets got messed up when Kansas went down? Yeah, that kind of got everybody. You know, the dynamics of a game changes when you have to play away from home. There's just something about not playing on your court. You and I have the privilege every Sunday of playing on our home court, of worshiping in our building, of worshiping in our country, worshiping our God. But we are not called simply just to reach this place. The Great Commission extends to the entire world. And we're called to be a part of global outreach. It's not just about flat rock, but it's about every other rock that's flat around the world and and wherever people are at and sharing the gospel to them. And the rules change dramatically when our missionaries have to go away to share the gospel. The truth of that you'll hear about in just a few moments when Clint Morgan, who is our guest speaker, comes to share with us today. Clint is a career missionary. He has been serving on the mission field for 33 years. And that is just absolutely, yeah, that is absolutely incredible. He has spent a good chunk of those years in the Ivory Coast, West Africa, um, out there in the bush, in the jungle, and taught in a Bible institute as well. And they started that and, and finished that. He is currently the director of Restricted and Cre- Creative Access Initiative, which tries to get inroads into that 1040 parallel where the majority of the world's population live that, have, that are basically untouched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is also, um, on, when he is not stateside, he lives in southern France working with the French Muslim community there. And for this year, he's the resident's missionary in residence at Free Will Baptist Bible College in Nashville, Tennessee. If you don't think he's busy, man, when I picked him up from the airport, I just kind of, we were just kind of talking, I've been asking him where he's been. In the month of March, he has been on four continents, you know, and so he doesn't really know what state he's in. It's probably the state of confusion, but, uh, but man, we're just glad to have Clint here. There's two things I want you to do. First of all, in just a moment when I introduce you, I want you to give him a nice Kirby welcome. But after the service, he's going to be kind of in the back. Would you stop by and greet him and, and just get to know him? And if your children are kind of making a switch, make sure that you introduce your kids to him uh, as well. And Clint, we are glad to have you here. My brother, would you come and share with us today from God's Word? I like your theme, you got game. Uh, I can say that uh, when I first met your pastor many years ago, I was starting in mission, and uh, he had game back then. I don't know if he still has game and I, he probably does. But we played a game of racquetball. I've never played with anyone. Anyone played racquetball with him? He bounces off the wall. I thought I was at the circus or something, you know. I mean, he's diving and, you know, really I expected to see him run across the ceiling after a while that he pretty well kept his feet on the ground most of the time, but he literally would dive for balls. I'm thinking, dude, it's a game. Uh, you know, but uh, very competitive. I'm sure that those of you who have been around him know that. But Mike and I began our friendship back then, and it's been a friendship with he and his family that has endured 
through this time, and I really love his family, and I know you're privileged to have him as the pastor of your church. Also, Donald, as your worship leader, just a really great team here. And uh, I want to say thank you to all of those who've reached out to me this morning, Don and Luke, wherever you guys are, and Yolanda and June uh, around you've reached out and shook my hand and Tom said he's going to pray for me right here and I you know it's just really neat so I just thank you for that good uh, Kirby welcome uh, wherever you go that's something we can take with us and make people feel welcome wherever we go I want to say thank you also to those who've already contributed to the provision closet um, Lynette my wife I'm sorry that she cannot be with us but she's speaking also she had a speaking engagement yesterday today and tomorrow uh, in the Nashville area, and she's speaking to several women's auxiliary, and uh, I was reading over the history of women's auxiliary just a little bit, try to give her some information, and we were talking through some talking points for her, and I said, did you know that in Free Will Baptist, the uh, women's auxiliary, or I think the National Active for Christ now, excuse me, I'll get the right name for it, not, in, not the auxiliary anymore, Women National Active for Christ, uh, what do you call yourself, Winax? I don't know, you know, Winax. And uh, so, but the, it started back in the 1700s, actually. Um, free Will Baptist, there was a Free Will Baptist back then, it was one word, Free Will or Free Baptist Women's uh, Missionary Society. And one of the first gifts, collected gifts they ever gave was a horse, a saddle, and a bridle for a lady to go around and to pray and encourage the rest of the ladies. So you have a really warm and wonderful history. And if you go back throughout the history of missions, you do find that women were always actively involved. And we, are, we do sincerely appreciate it. And I will tell you this, I will speak for a missionary. If you take WNAC out of our missionary experience, there's a great big hole there. You cannot imagine, you truly cannot imagine, all that you do and the ladies that have, have done throughout the years in providing for our personal needs, some of the things. I mean, it's just really neat to be able to go in there and pick up some towels and some the things that I noticed you have the coffee makers that's where I always like to go or toasters or whatever is going on but you always have provided those things and I will tell you I can speak for all the missionaries we sincerely appreciate that so thank you for making that effort uh, to give and uh, may God bless you as you do this let me transition quickly <clears throat> to our subject and I realized a while ago I cut on my microphone then I coughed and I heard myself cough did you hear that no, no good <clears throat> And you're, are you telling the truth? You're in the house of the Lord now, so be sure you tell the truth here. Um, I, that was crazy. But anyway, sometimes you forget that you're on. But I'm on now, and I know. I think most of you recognize this particular passage that's up there, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We probably attach it to what we call the Great Commission verses. I'm going to assume uh, that we all understand or know about the five Great Commission verses that we have in the Scriptures First one, and you can help me, Matthew, anyone? Matthew, Great Commission verses, five of them, passages. Matthew, 28, 19, and 20. I got you started, now you can finish the rest. Mark, say it again. Yeah, you're right, go ahead. 24, 47, or 44 through 48, if you care. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark 16, 15. I'm sorry, I was getting ahead of myself. Luke 24, 47 through 48, or 44 through 48. John 20, 21. As the Father sent me, even so send I you. And Acts 1, 8, 
where he says, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I can only imagine that when the disciples heard this, they weren't really excited. Uh, I mean, just a quick rundown. You know, Jerusalem had just crucified Christ. Judea was the center of Judaism. Samaria was the home of those half-breed Jews. And, uh, and then the uttermost parts of the earth or the world were just filled with pagans, just rank pagans that the Jews had nothing. Did, they really didn't want to have anything to do with them, didn't even want to eat with them or participate with them in anything. But Christ made it very clearly that the gospel is for all people, whether in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we look at that, we have a way of evaluating. And we say, well, this is our Jerusalem right here, Flat Rock. I don't know. That's a funny name for Michigan. I don't know why. Sounds like something out in Texas somewhere. I don't know where you live, Flat Rock. But, I mean, if you, you like it, right? You're, you're okay living in Flat Rock. How many of you live in Flat Rock? Not many. I can see that, yeah. But... Uh, that's our Jerusalem. Then we can say that's your Jerusalem. Then you have your Judea, Samaria, and the most parts of the earth. But in the year, well, we can say from its very beginning in 1945, Free Will Baptist International Missions had a vision for the world. There's no two ways about it. But every year, our staff, our mission staff, goes off on a retreat. In the year 2000, they went off on their annual retreat. And as they, when they're there, they do the planning for the next five or ten years. And in 2000, they were on their planning opportunity, spending some time together and fasting and prayer and saying, God, what do you you want us to do as a mission for the next 10 years? What's our goals and our objectives? And one of the things that they said, collectively as a group, they agreed that God wanted us to go into what we call restricted or creative access countries. Well, this wasn't... This was different than what we were doing. Now, we have been in some creative or restricted access countries. Now, those two words or concepts may be a little bit different for you, but they're self-explanatory. Restricted means that there are some restrictions put on or by the country, by the government. There are some restrictions put on preaching the gospel and planting churches. Many of them just say you can't do it. Some of them are, are simple restrictions of some kind, making it difficult or complicated for you to have the right and opportunity to share the gospel. But this was a, a, a shift for us as a mission. Up until, we can say from 19, I said 45, from 1935 up until this time, we basically had followed what we call a harvest theology. Now, harvest theology means you go where people are responding to the gospel, and you try to go and take, uh, be a part of what's happening. But when you talk about going into restricted or creative or closed countries, that's a whole different perspective because these are areas that are totally or, or you know, at least obviously visibly resistant to the gospel. But as the mission made this decision to go in this direction, they said, well, we need someone to develop some strategies, some ideas on how to go into these areas. And collectively as a staff, they chose Lynette and I, my wife and I. They called us, contacted us. We were in France actually doing a a short-term fill-in for Steve and Becky Riggs. And we were there for four months. And they called and said, this is where we're going. This is where we feel like we need to go as a mission. Would you guys be interested in helping us develop strategies? We said, would you give us a couple of weeks to pray about it? And they did, and two weeks later, we really had peace. We had already felt the winds of change blowing in our life and in our ministry because we were coming to the end of our Bible Institute program because we were, we were turning it over to the national church. But we had a commitment to go back until 2002. And so we said, well, what we'd really like to do is go back to Ivory Coast uh, until 2002 
and then come back and really engage in this uh, activity or, or, or carrying out these plans and these strategies for reaching into creative access countries. They accepted that. So this was a shift for us and also for us as a Free Will Baptist denomination and as a mission. But during the, those next two years, we did a lot of research. We said, well, if we're going to go into creative access countries, we need to understand more about these countries and see what some of the needs are and what can we do. Let me just share with you some of the physical needs and the spiritual needs that we saw and that really will touch us. First of all, there's, as we said, there is a world that is in need physically. Now, if we can imagine in our world today, 2.4 billion people that are considered poor. Now, that is not half of our population, but it's almost half of our population of the world, 2.4 billion, and that means they make less than $1.85 a day. Now, is there anyone here willing to work for $1.85 an hour? Probably not $1.85 a minute, some people, you know, but $1.85 a day, and that's set by the international community, the international um, uh, United Nations, and they set what they consider this line of demarcation for what's considered poor. There are 2.2 billion people without adequate water supply. We cannot really grasp this. We can go into our restrooms, literally, and cut on the faucet and drink the water there. But there are 2.2 billion people in the world without adequate water supply. We have another uh, 1.8 billion people that are undernourished. Again, in our world of plenty, we can imagine these are things that are difficult for us to imagine. 1.5 billion with no access to medical care. Now, this sort of surprises me, uh, but when we go to places we've been, we see that there are areas that have no doctors, no clinics, no nurses. But I read uh, about a year ago, and I can't remember what store it was. Some of you may have read this yourself or heard about it. But there's like a Walmart or Target, I can't remember. But when you walk into the store, there is a walk-in clinic. And you go in and you sign in, and they give you one of those little things like buzz buzz, like they do at restaurants. And you go about your shopping, and when your number comes up and the doctor's ready to see you, it gives you a little, you know, in your hand, a little shock, and you know it's your turn, and you stop your shopping for a while. You go see your doctor, and then you go. That's how convenient it is for us. We know one of the biggest debates that is going on right now is health care for everyone. But there are 1.5 billion people in the world with absolutely no access to medical care. This is the world that we live in. There are 1.1 billion without sufficient housing. Now, what that means is if it rains, sleets, snows, the sun shining, you know, it's terribly hot, there are 1.1 billion people that cannot be protected from the elements. There are another 1 billion people in our world today that are non-literate, meaning they cannot read. Now, if someone has a sixth grade education, they're considered literate. Most people, if they can read at all, would be considered literate. But we still have 1 billion people in our world today who cannot read. But not only did we see there are a lot of physical needs, there are spiritual needs and spiritual challenges around us. There are 2.6 billion people in the world today that are denied religious freedom. We have it now, and I think we know this. But again, you're getting pretty close to half of the world, at least a little over a third of the world's population today that does not have religious freedom. They cannot worship the way they want. They cannot worship where they want. They cannot sing what they want. They cannot have the Bibles if they want one. They cannot have access to the scriptures if they want it. So you have 2.6 billion people who are denied religious freedom, some of them under severe persecution. 
There are two billion people still, again, in our world today with no access to the Scriptures. That means they do not have a Bible or New Testament or anything at all. Again, this, should, this is unreasonable in our world today. There are 16,008 people groups in the world. And when we talk about people groups, what we mean is that these people, a group of people, have a linguistic or ethnic or religious affinity that brings them together and they are identified in this way. It can be tribal, it can be a religious group, but there are 16,008 people groups in the world and there are still 6,767 that are still unreached. Now when we say unreached, we mean that there is not a viable presentation of the gospel being given to these people. The gospel is not being communicated there uh, for whatever reason, sometimes it's because it's not permitted, but whatever the reason is, we still have that. There's 6,468 living languages. Now, there are many languages, whether we know it or not, that have sort of come and gone. There are over, at one time, there were over 10,000 languages in the world. So today, there's 6,468 that are still being spoken and used, yet there are 4,000 of them still without the gospel. These things, again, are mind-boggling. But as we look at the world in a global sense, there are about... Now, any, any geography buffs around here, you may want to argue with this, but in the world today, there are 238 countries, give or take a few. And we know that this does shift, not on a day-to-day basis, but it can change because borders are being opened and borders are being closed. But there are 238 countries in the world today, and of these, 120 of these are considered creative access or restricted access countries. Now remember what I said, a restricted access country, there are countries, these are countries where the government or the people themselves put some type of restrictions on preaching the gospel and planting churches. So that means that about half of the churches in the world today are what we would call creative access or restricted access countries. Now understand, some of them are more so than others. In fact, of the 120 countries that are considered creative access, there are 30 plus, and I say 30 plus, that are considered closed countries. Now, I don't know if you're interested in these lists or seeing these at all, but I have them not with me, but I can send them to you if you're interested in in seeing that. These are lists not that I've made up myself or statistics that I've made up myself. I did a lot of research. We did a lot of research from several sites, and if you were to go and look at some of these numbers, you might find things that are a little bit different, and that doesn't bother me at all because I'd be thrilled to know that you were doing some research, but the reason is because they have different definitions, the way people are defined, etc. But we have, these are good, clear approximates that give us an idea of the world that we're facing today. But as we looked at this situation and we said as, as a mission organization, we are not going to be able to reach 120 countries that are considered creative access countries. So we prayed about it and said, Lord, you know, would you help us narrow down an area, uh, narrow our focus down? And it came to an area of the world called the 1040 window or the 1040 initiative, the 1040 window that you know about. How many of you, and please do not be embarrassed to raise your hand, how many of you do not know what the 1040 window is? Would you raise your hand? Okay, and that's fine. This is what we're here for. It is an area of the world called, if you go to the equator, most of us know where that is. Uh, If you go to the equator on a map and you go 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator, those are the two numbers, 10, 40. And the window, they call it that because then they block it off 
from West Africa all the way over to Asia. So you can see that basically on the map. That is called the 1040 window. Now what is interesting about this is that as one-third of the world's land mass, but about two-thirds of the world's population, over four billion people live in the 1040 window. There are about 57 countries in the 1040 window. But as we did research, we found that in the 1040 window, there's some very disturbing things there. I talked to you about the poor people, what it means to make less than $1.85 a day. 84% of the world's poorest people live in the 1040 window, in those 57 countries that are touched by the 1040 window. 74% of the least evangelized countries are, again, in this block, in this 1040 block. 94%. 95, excuse me, percent of these people living in, this, in these countries are still unevangelized. If you look at a map and if you do some research, you'll find across, for example, in North Africa, and you look at the number of evangelical Christians in there. You can go to Libya, for example, which we know, and it's 0.00 percent evangelical. You go across to Tunisia, it's like 0, 0. 0.3, you know, 0, 0.0, excuse me, 0. 0.03 Others are, but there's not even one that's 1% in that whole band across North Africa. And that's just a, a couple of the countries. But you can go into to many others and you see exactly the same thing. But in this window, we find there's a great population explosion. There's almost 1 billion Muslims living there. Now, again, this is one of those numbers. I said almost 1 billion because they say there's somewhere between 1 and 1.4 billion Muslims in the world today. But almost 1 billion of them live in that 1040 window. There are 800 million Hindus and 300 million Buddhists. But there's a, a statistic that came out of our research that is absolutely shocking to me. And that is that there are 1.4 billion people in the 1040 window who have never heard the gospel even once. Now, I'm going to say that again. 1.4 billion people who have never heard the gospel even once. We cannot even imagine what 1.4 billion people look like. You've been to probably a football game stadium of 100,000. That's a ma massive amount of people. You know, you've seen the million people marching on Washington. For, that's a lot of people. But 1.4 billion people in our world today, in this 1040 window, who have never heard a gospel presentation. I don't know about you, but that's shocking. So as we did this research and we began to look at the possibilities and, and the challenges were there, we said, you know, what are we going to do? How, what's our responsibility as it relates to this 1040 window in other parts of the world where unreached people are? There's a passage that came in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. If you study this particular passage, I, I want to say I don't, I'm not adding to the Great Commission, but I really like this particular passage. It's Paul standing before Agrippa. Now, I think all of us would agree that Paul was pretty much what we would call the quintessential missionary. But as he's standing before Agrippa, not to defend himself against a crime, but simply defending his faith, and he, what does he do? He simply gives his testimony. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment to make a statement. As we look at this particular passage in Acts chapter 26, an interesting thing happens here. Here you have the quintessential missionary, a theologian, obviously a, a true man of God, 
And when he is standing before this world leader, what does he do? He simply gives his testimony. Now, I say that to encourage each one of you who struggle sometimes and talk about, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to say. If, you know, we talk about witnessing, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. Just let me interject here that here is the missionary, the Apostle Paul, and when he's before a world leader, he simply gives his testimony. If Christ has transformed your life, you have a testimony. You have something to share. Because I can tell you, there's a couple of things you can't deny about people. You cannot deny what they have experienced or what they feel. But in this particular passage, there are two words that jump out at us. And that are the, those two words we just saw, are minister and witness. Now, if you underline in your Bible, I want to encourage you to underline those words. Because Paul, when he's talking about this, what he says is, And a voice spoke to me, and Christ said to me, Through this voice, I have called you for this purpose, to be a minister and a witness. Now, those words are simple, but man, are they profound, and they're loaded. Minister means, simply means to meet people's needs. That's all, to meet needs. We know what witnessing means. So he's called us, and I, I will say this, as a group, evangelicals have done pretty well in emphasizing the witnessing. We haven't done too well overall in ministering. Now, there are other groups who do well at ministering, but not too good at witnessing. And what I want to say is that I think that we need to sense a challenge and a purpose, as Paul did, that we are all called to be ministers and witnesses, wherever we might be. We saw some of the physical and spiritual needs around the world. And we understand what the Great Commission says. But as we look at this ministering and witnessing, it is fulfilling the Great Commission by obeying the Great Commandment. To love everyone, to reach out to our neighbors, to care, to see what's going on in their lives, and to see how we can meet those needs. Well, there we were. We, you know, had the challenge. We had the, we had done the research. We see that there's physical needs. We see that there's spiritual needs. We see that this, we have this biblical if you want to call it the impetus to do this, to the push to go do this, this per minister and witness, we said, you know, how are we going to do this concretely? So we began to think about ways, strategies. How do we develop strategies to go about this? Then we came up with what we call a four-pronged strategy, and I'll give them to you briefly. As we looked at going, the possibility of going into these creative or restricted access countries, there were four are reaching, and I want to expand that thought because I want to say, we changed our purpose from going into the creative or restricted access countries to reaching creative or access, or creative access people. And that did change our thinking because we said, look at us here in America. Now, how many of you have neighbors that are from a foreign country? They're not native-born Americans. You have neighbors, you know someone, and if you don't, if you stop in any store, any store, you're going to meet people who are not native-born Americans. That says that there are hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, literally, that are coming to different countries from these creative access countries. In the town of Nashville, Tennessee, where we live right now, there are 11,000 Kurds from Iraq. 11,000, the largest concentration of Kurds outside of Iraq. And what are we doing as evangelicals to meet these? So our first concept, our first strategy concept was what we call the outside in. In other words, there are people coming from these restricted or creative access countries to America. 
to our hometown, to where we live. And the question is, what are we doing to reach them? Our, or the answer to that question may be for some, what are we trying to do to get rid of them? Or to keep them from coming? And I think we as Christians really should be thinking, they are here, and they're probably not going to go away. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I'm saying they are here, and they're looking for something. And you know what? They have physical needs, but they also have a very deep spiritual need. And these are golden opportunities for us to reach them. So that's outside in. In other words, they're coming to us. We reach them here with the purpose of winning them, discipling them. And if they feel led to go back to their homeland, then they have us beat all to pieces because they already speak the language. They know the culture. They can go back and minister to their people. Second one, in and out strategy. We said, you know, there are many believers in these countries. Can we go in and do projects humanitarian projects, and empower local believers. So we begin to think about that. How can we go about that? How can we go into these countries and find where the believers are and help work with, uh, alongside them and partner with them and empower them? The third one, the proximity strategy. I said, what can... Now, proximity strategy, as you know and I know, all borders are fluid. In other words, people can get across borders. You can build your fences if you want, but you cannot keep people from coming. They will find a way if they want to get out, right? I mean, I think we, we know this. And that's the way it is. No matter where the country is and how tight they are, people will go across. So we find, for example, in France and in Spain and some of the country, other countries in Europe, there are many, many people coming from North Africa into these cities. For example, Marseille, France, not far from where we live, 800,000 population, 200,000 people of that 800,000, another one quarter of the population are North African immigrants. 200,000. That doesn't count the 80,000 from the Comoros and the others from the other countries and the 80,000 Jews that live there. But 200,000 Muslims living right there. They've come across. And in the proximity strategy, this is the idea. You get as close to a restricted or a closed country as you possibly can where the borders are fluid and people are coming over. You meet them there, you win them, you disciple them, and if they feel led, they go back into their country. The fourth one is the the inside-in strategy. This is where we actually have missionaries, although they're not called that, because we can't call ourselves missionaries in these countries, but we have personnel that can go and actually live in a creative access country. Right now we have people living in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia, and in Morocco, in North Africa, and we're hoping to find people who can go into other countries. So we began to see this, and we said, these are some possibilities. These are possible means to get into these countries. So standing back, took a step back again, doing our research, and we said, what are we doing and to actually, are we really witnessing and ministering, ministering and witnessing to, this, to the unreached? An amazing statistic came up. Just 15% of our missionary force, and I'm talking about all evangelical missions, 15% of the missionary force and only 5% of our resources are going into the 1040 window. Now, I'm not a mathematician, not a mathematical genius, but it doesn't take us you know, a lot of thinking to figure out if you have two-thirds of the world's population but only 15% of your missionary force and only 5% of your missionary resources going into that area, there's something wrong there. Would you agree? Can you sort of nod or let me know that you're... That makes sense, doesn't it? 
But there's something not balanced there. And what can we do to change that balance? What can we do to to change that 15%? If you have two-thirds of the people that are lost and living in this country, are living in this 1040 window, then it would stand to reason a large percentage of our missionary force and a large percentage of our resources ought to be concentrated there. But that's not the reality. And what can we do about it? I'm not saying that we have any quick answers. But we said, you know, we can go into restricted access countries. How can we do it? And we found that the one commonality among those that are reaching into and going into creative access countries is that, that they, have, they go through NGOs, non-government organizations, non-profit, non-government organizations. So we set up one ourselves through our mission. It's called the HANA Project. Anyone ever heard of the HANA Project? Raise your hand if you've heard of the HANA Project. Okay, the HANA Project is our non-government organization, and it's the humanitarian project arm of Free Will Baptist International Missions with the purpose of going into countries and reaching the unreached of those countries or in the creative access countries in particular trying to bring help, hope, and healing to the unreached peoples of the world. By the way, the Hanna Project, where it got its name, is from Carlisle Hanna. Carlisle Hanna, some of you know him. Carlisle Hanna is a missionary who served in, Ivory, excuse me, in India since 1953. He is still there, still working. When he went into the country, he went in and did humanitarian projects. He introduced wheat into northern India. He introduced a new breed of cattle, new breed of chicken. He did agricultural projects, road projects. And he worked there for nearly 20 years with very little results, but just ministering to the needs, ministering to the needs, witnessing when God gave him the opportunity, ministering and witnessing, ministering and witnessing. And as a result of his faithfulness now, as I said, since 1953, so 57 years now, he's been in the country. But now there are over 500 churches and uh, Christian communities as a result of his ministry. Now, that's what I believe in. I believe that if we go into these creative or restricted access countries and we're faithful at ministering, God is going to give us opportunities to witness. I want to just tell you just a few things that we've done through the Hannah Project. We were established in 2004 legally in the state of Tennessee, did our first project in 2006. I don't have time to explain all these to you, but we've dug wells in Kyrgyzstan and Cote d'Ivoire. Let me just tell you about one project that we did in Kyrgyzstan. It's a place, a, a village out in the eastern part, western part, excuse me, of Kyrgyzstan that was chosen by Christians that we're working with there, a Baptist union group. They chose that village for 10 years of this area of 8,000 people had not had clean drinking water. We went in there. We were able to work through the, the Baptist Union, the group that we partnered with there. We were able to dig a well in this village, give 8,000 people clean drinking water. We dug a second well that provided 300 families with irrigation for their small garden so they could feed their family. And as a result of this, it empowered the local believers. They were able to go back in there, began to preach, and now there's a church existing in that church in that village as a result of this ministry. That's what we want to do. Minister. We went and ministered. They went in and witnessed. And as a result of that, people accept Christ and we see churches that are planted. We've also sent medical teams into Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and also Morocco. Again, I wish we had time to talk about all these. We don't. We painted schools in, uh, in Ivory Coast, uh, also in Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, also in, uh, in Central Asia. We passed out 15,000 school kits. Now, these school kits are just a little, uh, what do you call those, uh, 
plastic bags with ziplocs, little ziplocs, and they have notebooks in there with pencils and pens, and they're incur- to encourage the students to go to school and to study. And I'll tell you, it's exciting when we're, we go into these schools and we're passing out these school kits and seeing these little kids, and they just, they almost tremble, really, with excitement of having received real paper, real pencils, real pens, real, you know, real things that they can say that are their own. So we've passed out 15,000 school kits. We've distributed hundreds of soccer balls. It's interesting. We've gone into villages and done health care and, and wound care and things like that. And, you know, people are happy about that. But when we pull out the soccer ball, I'm telling you, these, the, the whole village, I'm talking about adults too. They, in, in Africa, one of the things they do is they'll throw dirt, dirt up in the air when they're happy about something. They'll run and grab a handful of dirt and throw it up in the air. Not very good to breathe, but a lot of fun to watch. And, but, you know, quite often when we hand out soccer balls, this is what they do. We've done over 300 surgeries in Morocco and Ivory Coast, free of charge, treated several thousand patients there vaccinated 12,000 people against meningitis, given out more than 10,000 what we call basic health care kits or basic first aid kits, uh, did wound care for, again, hundreds of people, built uh, playgrounds in Central Asia and Africa, helped uh, construct uh, an orphanage in Tajikistan, which was one of our, it's not completed yet, but we're, we have raised the money, $120,000, to take care of this project that is providing home for street boys, young men on, off of the streets there. And uh, what's been one of the joys of that, we were working with the, with the Baptist Union there, the, the Christians that we're working there with, and they already had a small house, but it could only hold eight. And two of the guys that came, that came to the United States a couple of years ago we're out of this children's home, out of this boy's home. So we've already seen a result of this ministry. And now they're in ministry. And we believe that by building this, helping with this orphanage for these young men, it will be able to house 35 young men. And we just believe, again, that God's going to work through that. Again, many things that we've been able to do through the Hannah Project. Teaching English and French, believe it or not, around the world, it's a great opportunity to teach English. In this country of Kazakhstan, the government has made a law that people have to learn three languages. Kazakh. Russian and English. If we could send 2,000, and I'm not exaggerating, if we could send 2,000 English teachers tomorrow, they would accept them. Now think about that. If we had 2,000 Christians who were sold out, ready to go into this opportunity, what a great door of opportunity this would be for us to go minister and, of course, have opportunities to witness. We also constructed basketball courts, many soccer courts in uh, several areas. We distributed clothes and shoes and blankets and, and other basic materials of life. Um, constructed or contributed medical equipment to clinics and especially to Christian groups that still are in need but they're small and struggling. We've been able to do that. We've done teaching on the basic first aid and just a whole lot more. That's just, uh, you know, we're, we're just beginning. We feel like we're just beginning. We feel like we've been able to accomplish a lot. But most of all, what gives us the joy is being able to empower local believers. Please allow me an extra minute to tell you one story of Morocco. We worked alongside a pastor there who started a, a non-government organization, a small one. We came in and we partnered with him. We did several projects in Morocco. And in 2008, 2009, the king of Morocco recognized six non-government organizations that had contributed greatly to the well-being of the Moroccan people. And his NGO, although small, through the help of the Hannah Project, was recognized by the king as one of the six. We feel like we've empowered him. 
And this is what we want to do. These are great opportunities for us. But the question for us today is what can you do? What's your role? What does God want you to do in reaching the unreached people?